Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. Now, if you were to cut me in half with a knife and look inside, I think what you'd find is someone who loves challenger brands. I've really enjoyed in my career, probably spending more time working on the underdog and the challenger brand than I have actually on the establishment brands. And I've loved, you know, Adam Morgan's Eat Big Fish and The Pirate Inside and books like that. It really, really inspired me. And I met someone else recently that's also written a book about being a challenger. And that's Sam Conniff, who wrote a book called Be More Pirate. It is really inspiring and he delves into the stories of the pirates from the golden age of piracy to draw out some lessons for today. And it's incredible how many of those lessons you can actually apply to, you know, to business today. He's a really, really clever guy and he's a fascinating individual that's doing some really interesting work. In fact, he also talks in this episode about what he's doing with uncertainty and how we can manage and leverage uncertainty in our jobs. Now, if you want to get a copy of the book, here it is for anyone who's watching. There you go. You can see the, the nice pink book here. It doesn't even have his name on it, which is quite interesting. Um, so if you're listening, it's a pink book, uh, some very interesting graphics on it. And uh, it's called Be More Pirate. It's got the classic Steve Jobs quote. Now, if you listen to the end of the episode, um, Sam is going to give away a few of these books to anyone who can guess how many he's sold since he wrote it. So listen, listen for that. This is a really good episode. He is one of the most fascinating, interesting people I've met. And I know you're going to get a lot out of this. So here's my conversation with Sam Conniff. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for having me. Really enjoyed the book. So thank you for writing it. I'd love to get in and find out a bit more about why you wrote the book and some of the insights we can get from piracy. Um, let me start with a couple of weird questions, though. I was quite surprised that the book is pink and you've also got pink glasses. There must be a thought behind the use of pink. Uh, if I was to take my top off, you'd also see my pirate tattoos. My word. <laughs> there we go. This is, this is going on YouTube as well, by the way. Yeah, so well, we can, we can get the to it. The opportunity at the end. Uh, right on. You know, there's an overused phrase, isn't there, about living the brand and it's said and never meant. But I think you, you know, if you're not willing to live your brand, then you've got a problem uh, with whatever it is you're, you're working on. Hot pink became the colour of liberty, my, my agency. Um, and it was because we stood for trying to do things differently and we had to live it. You know, the, we were putting our neck on the line as to how differently we thought things should be. And we opened up our offices to you know, excluded and troublesome or kids that would be considered troublesome in society, let's say. And so pink became our statement color. Yeah. And, and then um, getting a book cover designed is remarkably difficult. Uh, I was very lucky to get published by Penguin, who are awesome in many regards. But by George, the publishing industry is somewhat reductive. And I was so lucky that I found the most brilliant creative director that were willing to take a risk and go well outside the norm. My name's not on the cover. All the normal yeah. tropes. Uh, well, it's we very different because it almost looks like the back of the book is the front of the book and you're not quite sure which way around it is. And it, 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 yeah. it's surprising, isn't it? We had to take a real risk. And he, he pulled, he did some research, he pulled on the pink from Liberty. And there was all the normal book covers. Yeah. And there's lots of, you can see them, you know, most non-fiction business books of a certain, you know, books written by blokes that look and sound like me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. If you put the covers next to each other, they're as boring and white as, as I am. Yeah. Uh, and so he presented this, this book and it was the most radical of all the ones. And we were so, he'd, he'd taken it in the car park. He'd spray paid it himself. Um, that when I'd done the pitch to Penguin, I'd put that Steve Jobs quote on the front because as you and me and probably most of the people know listening, whenever you're willing to do a pitch, you'll basically make anything up. And so it's got Steve Jobs quote. And, and there we were with all this nonsense, right? It doesn't have an author's name, doesn't have any of the rules. It's hot pink. Yeah. It's got an illegal Steve Jobs quote. And everyone's like, brilliant. This, Perfect. This well, it does fit the theme. We're going to come in fact to it later, but like, you know, the, the, how the pirates had their own distinctive asset, didn't mm -hmm. they? And how they did that very well. So it fits in with the theme brilliantly. Um, and it turned out the new project I'm working on has got this pink through line. And the designer worked on that and said, oh, it's great. I love the way that you've carried on the, the punk colours. Oh. 
I did say that. What do you mean? 1972, uh, pink and black were colours of punk resistance. And it was partly, they think, or as I've read about it, there's kind of solidarity with queer movements. There's like resistance. Again, there's, there was a huge overlap with a new Renaissance art scene. And so, yeah, pink. So whether I picked that up, God knows, in utero or something, um, <laughs> pre-utero. Uh, nonetheless, uh, so yeah, it feels like a, a, a happy colour that reflects who I am. Okay, brilliant. Well, it, actually, it, it's a lovely coincidence because one of my favourite books of all time is Adam Morgan's The Pirate Inside. Mm-hmm. And if I wind myself back a few years, I, I was uh, working at Big Soft Drink Business and I decided to take over the, the, the innovation, right, and, and sort of manage a business within a business. It was like I, I, I spotted the opportunity for these brilliant brands that have been neglected, you know, because, um, you know, the company I worked for, the portfolio had expanded to be quite large. And there are these amazing brands that people forgot about. And I, so I put this big pitch together to say, wouldn't it be great if we could invest in these brands and give them the sort of, you know, uh, give them the support they deserve? It's slightly surprising because I wasn't expecting to them to say yes, but, you know, went to the board and they all got, you know, they all kind of went around and said, actually, this is a good idea and uh, got the money. And then, of course, thought, oh, right, I've got to do this now. And I remember being... Um, this really weird moment in my career, actually, where for the first time I felt lonely. It's a very weird experience because what I realized is nobody else around me was doing what I was doing. You know, I was trying to be the pirate, I guess, within the big, like being a pirate in the Navy, right? Suddenly my rules were different. What made me successful was different. And I remember discovering Adam's book called Pirate Inside, which was describing, you know, kind of how you disrupt an organization and so on. So anyway, it was really, really inspiring. So when I read this, there's a lot of lovely analogies about piracy. But talk to me about where the piracy inspiration came from. Because at first glance, it seems a bit unusual. But the more you kind of scratch under the surface, the more you see fascinating parallels with being on, you know, with entrepreneurialism. Uh, the fear and loneliness that comes before success is unlike other kinds of fear and loneliness. And we associate them with times of failure and difficulty. Mm-hmm. But just on the cusp of knowing you're onto something that's going to work is exactly when, certainly my, my in most profound inner sabotage kicks off because success in a way is far scarier so I I relate to that I read Adam's book as well and it put the fear of God into me because I was I'd had been commissioned I was halfway through Be More Pirate as a book uh, and I was in this race against time because I couldn't believe that nobody had ever seen the parallel no one had gone and discovered and done the research that I'd done because it was so you know this point that you make about the parallels with now you know, and so there's a few pirate historians. There's also a set of pirate economists, and they're drawing these parallels. But their books are niche pirate history books. Yeah. They're very useful for me for my research. But no one made the parallels I had. And then I found Adam's book, and I was like, "Fuck, he's done it, bollocks!" And it's Adam fucking Grant. Uh, and so I, I got it. And Adam Morgan, yeah, sorry. And so I'm, I'm overlapping him with pirates. And then read the first chapter, and I was like, "Right, he's basically nailed exactly what I want to say." Sugar, yeah. turn the next page, and then he just drops it. And and he drops the pirate metaphor. He makes the metaphor well up front. And then the rest yeah, of the book yeah, is yeah. predominantly really well-made case studies. And I was like, ah, ha, ha, great. Uh, perhaps he's far wiser than me and he hasn't thought that you can stretch this metaphor <laughs> too far. <laughs> but luckily, I have no such qualms <laughs> and pulled the metaphor through. So, yeah, I, I'd always used pirates as a uh, metaphor i've done most of my work has always revolved around some form of mentoring um and certainly my involvement in in agencies and marketing that's very much a big part of what we did and always drawing inspiration from the edges and i believe in that profoundly believe that the best of innovation comes from the edges and the shadows and it's very hard to innovate well under a spotlight and then as i was leaving liberty uh, i had this chip on my shoulder that it was time to grow up 
Um, I'd always been challenged. You know, Liberty was very much about young people and youth culture. And so in my mind, I'd said, when I'm old, I will have to hand over to a younger yeah. generation. And people had said, when's old? And because I started Liberty when I was 21, I said 40. Because that sounded as far away as the apocalypse. And I was like, right. And, and then, then crept up on you. <laughs> yeah. Didn't much creep up, snuck up. <laughs> yes. Sneaky fucking 40. And so left and decided to write a book, partly because I never went to university, got a chip on my shoulder, partly dyslexic, partly I think that's the kind of thing you do. And I thought, I'm going to write a grown-up business book. Like, that's, that'll be cool. And like, the world will take me seriously. And I wrote, I started writing the world's most boring book. Uh, and I got 20,000 20, words into this thing. And it was called Purpose First. And it was the argument that I thought Liberty had done a pretty good job of blueprinting the role that meaningful purpose, measurable purpose can play, not just in marketing now, but in business. And by God, it was boring. And I got a commission on the back of it. And the, the author was like, this is, a mo this is a moment. I mean, this is yeah. what nearly 10 years ago. So, you know, Liberty was slightly ahead of that curve. And, and I was testing the material with some of my colleagues and clients and particularly the kind of young people that we'd mentored and gone out into the industry. And they're like, fucking hell, granddad, what's happened to you? Why, why are you so boring? Yeah, where's your usual stories of rocket ships and pirates? And I was like, mm, yuck, yeah. yeah. I went back to my desk and I sat on my uh, desk for about a week. You know, where are all the pirates? And... I couldn't work out why I said pirates. And I went to the British Library um, and then Greenwich Maritime Museum and I started finding newspaper articles and I found a book called The General History of Pirates. Wow. And in there, published in 1720-something, um, and it was thought to have been written by uh, Daniel Defoe and it just became this legendary bestseller and it captured all these stories of democracy and it just hit me. There we were, 2016, and I was, as I was writing it. There's this very confused world on the back of, you know, massive interconnected conflict that no one really understands. There's this generation that feels like it's locked out of its own future. There's a ruling elite that are clearly operating in their own self-interest under a vague banner of democracy that no one believes in. And this generation says, fuck it. We have to do something differently. We're not going to subscribe to these, these same rules. And they set out and built these very sophisticated societies where there's equality, there's freedom of decision-making, there's fairness and sharing of principles from finance to governance. There's an incredible sense of branding. There's an understanding of uh, gender equality, of racial equality, stuff that wasn't seen in the world, but also was you know, punishable by death elsewhere in the world. And because I'd worked for so long with a, a new generation coming through, it just felt that this this parallel was so obvious. And the average age, the pirates were the millennium, millennials, the gen, gen, you know, the next generation um, in 1695. And you're like, fuck me. This, yeah. And because we lack, or I felt that the generation that was coming through lacked a decent set of real case studies, and I'll be fucking goddamned if I'm going to give Elon Musk as another, you know, here is what innovation should look like. Not that Elon Musk is not innovative, but, you know, yeah. he's a preposterous spellend. And it was like, right, but here actually is a story. And what I was looking for, it felt like too often the, the, the role models that we serve up are short-lived. And But the suffragette civil rights movement is, you know, overtold. And if you were to be objectively honest about it, pirates sit between the levelers and the chartists, the trade union movement, the cooperatives, and the su suffragettes in the long arc of the history of the British working class. And not just the history of the British working class, but the innovation that was brought about as a result of it and the things that people have lived and died and fought for. And we find ourselves now in the 21st century equivalent of, because it's about equality, it's about fairness, yeah. it's about justice, and it's about agency. Well, that's a surprising thing that you get in your book, Hit Between the Eyes, very early on, is just how forward-thinking and disruptive they were, weren't they? So whether you're talking about democracy or diversity, or fair pay 
or how they shared power or, you know, it's it's concepts that probably we're only now grasping now, you know, 300 years later. It's incredibly kind of, you know, ahead of their time. Um, Why is that? Why, why, Why did the pirates find themselves breaking so much convention, do you think? I, I don't think they were that forward thinking. I think the ideas were ahead of their time. And I think it's an interesting thing trying to, you know, much as we do at much of the moment, you know, the, the last couple of years have caused us to think about our, our ancestry and how do we become, you know, the moment in time that we're in, how do we think forward and try and be responsible, not just for the now, but for generations ahead. And that's a kind of, you know, we're very much used to short term thinking in long term world and, and this is definitely an industry that does that well. Yeah. What we had there was a, uh, you know, marketing knows this to draw a parallel. Very often marketers, we receive briefs that are sticking plasters on a business problem and it doesn't take a smart marketer long to go, well, actually, this is a fundamental issue with the product, service or business. Uh, we can't just rebrand, <laughs> rebrand it. And then there's a decision and it's often about levels of honesty, bravery or whether or not that, 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 that problem is fixable. So you've got a bunch of 20 odd year olds whose previous two generations had made their living robbing and stealing under the British flag. You know, for a hundred years, hundred years, there were three Spanish wars, there were two French wars, there was the Anglo-Dutch war, we had three civil wars, you know, it was a fucking bloody and mad time. Pirate Queen comes along and she, the the level of new international diplomacy, which is the foundation of what becomes the, the empire, so, you know, it's not going well in terms of the, the level of exploitative capitalism that we're laying down the DNA of. And there's generations are told robbing from Spanish people isn't okay anymore, unless you have one of my official letters. And then you're, then you're called a privateer. And that could be Walter Raleigh or Francis Drake, you know, her favourite men. So like this abject dishonesty, not dissimilar to what we've seen from our leaders over the last three years, I would add. But, you know, abject dishonesty goes on. And what was different then is like, well, fuck you. This is, you know... Uh, what you're doing is you're changing the rules of the game that we're part of. And then you've also got a society where there's pretty much no advancement if you're born into lower classes. And actually, it's a pretty terminal condition and working conditions are abjectly horrible. There's a resistance to the power, from the powers that be against democracy. There's democratic thoughts and movements taking place around the world. The French are threatening rebellion and revolution. That's what the large part of the, the end of the Civil War was about. And... I think, and I think this is a moment in time now in both the advertising industry and in, in generations when a point comes and you have to say fuck you. And you can say fuck you being, is, and, and that's what people think of yeah. pirates as rule breakers, but it's not a rebellious, chaotic act. It's a rebellious, yeah. creative act. And this thing that they did was to make new rules. If you'd been press ganged into the Navy, no wonder they made fair pay systems. If you'd been in the Royal Merchant Navy where you'd be left for dead if you were wounded, no wonder they create insurance schemes. If there was large amounts of uh, homosexual relationships that were meaningful and loving on board ships, but you'd be killed for that in any one of the, the, the navies that existed, no wonder they allowed and had ceremonies for it. Like They just responded to the unfairness that they seen in natural, human, sophisticated, evolutionary ways. Um, but because they made these societies that existed outside of the ruthless control that existed, uh, they were little petri dishes. And that's and then what they became really good at is telling a fucking bold story. Now, we talk a lot on the podcast about kind of marketing theory, right? And, and very often when we talk about marketing theory, we talk about theory that applies to established brands, big brands, when you've got lots of budget, you know, you're the dominant player. And what I love about the pirate analogies is they are in a tiny minority against the establishment, aren't they? I think in the statistics in your book, 
they might have been at the height of the navy you know in the wars you know with with spain probably there, were, there was one pirate boat for every 30 navy and i think even after it down to one in 10 isn't it and I love how they outmaneuvered the, the, the dominant player. Now, a lot of people actually listen to the podcast often say to me, John, it's great hearing all these case studies from well-established brands, all the theory, but I don't work for, you know, a company that has lots of money. What can we learn from the pirates in terms of what did they do that gave them the advantage over the kind of, I guess, the Navy to, you know, outmaneuver them at scale? Because I think a lot of people listening would love to know. I was sick of being called in to large brands to help them think like an entrepreneur. As an entrepreneur running a small business, there are certain things that are really tough and it felt a little bit patronizing to come in and say, oh, well, my sleepless nights and my lack of budget and the fact that my house is under risk and, you know, you know this, is, this is not necessarily how you want to think, but it does force a degree of innovation. What felt more honest was to say, I can show you how to think like a pirate because there are aspects of this um, that feel useful. What I perceive is... So there's firstly the facts of the matter. They were not very well resourced. They didn't have much recourse to be resourced. If you were seen as being a pirate, you couldn't really just call in at any port because you'd be reported and hung pretty much on the spot. Once pirating had become quite a popular pastime and people were aware of it, they were sentenced immediately to death. And uh, the word went out and anyone who was known to be a pirate would be killed on site. And, And that was both from the Spanish, the French and the English and the Dutch. So these powerful armadas. And the pirate society, which then was the beginning of the golden age, um, and it lasts around 30 odd years, and it has these powerful, profound moments. They, in response, declared war on the world. And it's just what a wonderful. So just as a starting point of the profound fuck yous, uh, the largest the pirate army ever assembled was around 2,000. So tiny, you know, like you say, about 30 to 1 odds often. And so they, I mean, apart from possibly Christianity, and there are some big flaws there, but that's a different podcast. I would say that the Skull and Crossbones is the first of its kind and most enduring viral brand ever created. And it was created deliberately to do that. So the first part of their marketing was in the flags and we could get lost on this one, but they all have different flags that mean different things. There's skeletons with a egg timer, which says death's coming for you. There's you know, hearts that are bleeding yeah. that was, you know, and Blackbeard had one, Captain Morgan had one, and they all had these various different things. Were they all like black and white or they were different inter- Various styles? interpretations, yeah. largely black and largely yeah. featuring images of death and something that says death is going to happen to you. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they were kind of clear, but the, the whole naval system was based on flags and, yeah. and, you know, still to a degree. They were usurping the kind of dominant code, as it were, in terms of exactly. branding it. And, you know, in, it's hard for us to conceive of this, but there's no radio, there's no semaphore, there's no form of communication over distance and mm. flags and telescopes were how you did it. So, And it was a corruption of all the naval techniques to have a black flag with... So it's like there's this... And, and I'm, I'm trying to answer the question in saying fuck you just 10 times because <laughs> there's all these different elements that they yeah. came from. They had this vantage point and a position. They had yeah. this willingness to fight and their, and their fight was fuck you against the unfairness that they'd seen. So each time they're corrupting it and, and they're, they're coming up with a different ways. And that's partly the problem with marketing. We start downstream. Here's, you know, we know what we want to say. We've gone through the strategy. Now it's, we're in execution mode and we're trying to think of a different way of doing it. What's the latest social media? And actually their starting point is this fuck you. And I'll come back to that's what marketeers can do. Then they had to fight, right, and win. But there's no way they could outfight anybody. So they created this brand in a way to drive their bottom line, which is why it begins to make it interesting. Blackbeard and Jack Rackham. So Jack Rackham is a bit of a kind of this this flamboyant gentleman, Calico Jack Rackham, named Calico Jack because he had all these glorious clothes that he'd wear. 
And um, he was the one who put together the skull and crossbones thing. So we should unite under this one flag. And the simple message of this flag, because all flags have a message, their flag message is surrender or die. Which, you know, morality-wise, again, we can come back to. But from a marketing point of view, yeah. single message. Yeah, exactly. You know what that is. Yeah. And why it drove the bottom line yeah. is it. the last thing a pirate wanted to do was have a fight. Yes. Ever. If your boat got injured, it slows it down. It's not a good getaway boat anymore. You've got limited amount of uh, munitions. You're certainly not going to win in a fight against the Royal British Navy. So they created this terrifying brand story. Blackbeard is known to have this furious great big beard and he'd get these bits of sulfur, make these fuses at the end of it. So he'd set light to his beard before going into battle. There's no record historically of him killing anyone until the day of his death. So, so Blackbeard, the most feared pirate, didn't actually kill anybody. Nobody. So he just used the perception of killing or the, or, or the, the, brand. Or the marketing. The, 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 yeah. Marketing. 100%. He was living his brand. That is a great example of someone living his brand. Yeah. They would steal the clothes of their most uh, wealthy uh, victims. Mm -hmm. So that's how, why you got this kind of fun pirate fancy dress. There's no other reason for dressing like that at all. It's deeply <laughs> impractical. There's a huge amount of makeup. So they're, they're kind of showing off their spoils in a way, are they? They just like project, like, look, you know, look they're at the fine you what coat they're that do I just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's marketing, pure yeah, and simple. Yeah. Who's your target audience? Wealthy people you want to surrender. Yeah. Uh, what's the emotion? Yeah. Fear. Yeah. What's the action you want to take? You want them to Submission, pay up yeah. fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's the turnaround time? Yeah. <laughs> immediate. The terms of payment <laughs> are immediate. Love it. Uh, and, and there's multiple nuances here. So if they uh, would board a ship, the first thing they'd do is interview the crew on the, the behavior of the captain. If the captain was a total bastard, which many of the captains were, I mean, this is a crazy time. And if yeah. you wanted to be a ship captain, you were, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Um, so they'd be marooned at sea with a gun, perhaps, to keep them company. So they would then start to export their values to other crews. Mm. So like, look, the last thing you want to do is be as bad captain. Mm. Um, they'd always uh, torture somebody, you know, but they'd pick out an individual and do something terrible, like cut off their lips and fry them and make them eat them. So there's, there, you know, there's horror and violence. Okay. Um, they'd then take recruit volunteers who wants to join us. And lots of people did want to join them because it's, yeah. it's like the unicorns of Silicon Valley. It's the only place in the world that you're going to earn a fucking fortune, yeah. possibly be listened to. It's this kind of mythical place on the other side of the world. And they've got insane free lunch. And then perpetuating this meant that you got a surrender on site scenario. So you would run up a pirate flag. The other boat surrenders. You take off the loot, leave a, uh, your signature and then off you drop profitability is what drove it. And it was such an effective marketing strategy that pirate pirates began to pop up. So people who weren't full-time pirates, they were sailors. They hadn't made a very good loot. So they'd have a secret pirate flag. And so they'd run their pirate flag up if they saw a vulnerable boat yes. because most people would then surrender on site and they'd yeah. pretend to be pirates. So pirates had to police their own brand. Oh, so if pirates saw someone pirating their pirate brand, they'd like, fuck them up. Uh, so there's, you know, those principles are so clear to anyone from a marketing point of view, yeah. right? That's not coincidence. They maintained that strategy. They maintained the consistency of that mm -hmm. message. Once they had a clear brand, they didn't fuck with it. They didn't, there wasn't a brand refresh, you know, two <laughs> years on. <laughs> they didn't change the colors yeah. of the flag. We're going pink. Yeah, yeah, or the tagline, surrender or maybe yeah. die. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> they were 100% on it. So to come back to the question, mm. what made them effective is they knew what they would fight for and they knew what they would die for. And so rather than, let's try and think like an entrepreneur, or how would we do this if we didn't have any money? You know, trite brainstorm games that won't get you to the, 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 the quick. They were willing to fight for it. And a willingness to fight for something is interesting. And it will take you and it will take your teams to different places. The lawyers who have recently glued themselves to the doors of the Department for Energy, yeah, they'll be struck off. They're willing to fight for something. But they have knowledge and they've made a professional decision and they'll take a risk on it. And that, I think, is the question. 
for the last 10 years, it's become pretty clear that most brands know and understand and their audiences expect them to stand for something. Great. I think the evolution of that is what are you willing to fight for? Who are you going to, who are you, and there are a few brands that really demonstrate this. You know, what, who, and, and, and in, in brand and mark, what are you willing to take a loss for or what are you willing to take a loss for? Because in that place, we are all frustrated with the state of the world. We're all frustrated at how difficult attention is and we all desperately, you know, are seeking more. Uh, and there is an opportunity to do that. And, and, and that place, pirates base their decisions on values, shared values in their pirate codes. They were willing to fight for this, this sense of egality and fairness and this new world that they'd created. And when you get close to that in life, and, and it happens to everyone, you know, whether you've had kids or you've started a business or you've, you, know, you find yourself in danger, a moment of trauma. When you get close to what you'll live and fight for, you get close to what you'll do your best work for. And it's true, actually, about defining who the enemy is, actually, as well. Because I think we, we forget, because we work in businesses, we're looking so internally, we forget, well, what is it we're trying to do? Who, who are we up against? Who's the enemy? Who are we trying to take over? It's funny, actually, reminded me of when you were talking about the, uh, what do I do if I've got no money? It's um, when I've been in big businesses, we've often used that as a sort of brainstorming exercise. Imagine you've got no money. And then within about five minutes later, you go, oh, actually, yeah, we have got 10 million quid. So you kind of bounce back. But I, know, I, know, I remember the feeling when I actually did have no money. I had left kind of comfortable corporate life and put my own money. That, that's nothing, actually. I put my own money. If I had to put all my savings in a management buy into a, to a small juice business, as it was then. And I was told day one, you've got no budget, right? You've got, to launch, you've got to launch the brand on this date, which was about a quarter of the length of time you'd normally have to do it. Um, you've got no marketing budget. And it, it took the theoretical brainstorm we might do in a kind of head office to reality boy, did I do my best work. Suddenly the creativity was up there, the kind of lengths you go to, the entrepreneur. It's amazing how galvanizing the reality is versus the kind of theory. It, it, it completely changed it. Oh, yeah. I think it's one of, one of the most dangerous things you can do is, you know, give a, give, put the budget before the idea. And it's a, yes. it's, it's a very complex place. But, you know, agencies get very frustrated and understandably so because here's the brief. We, we won't let you know the budget or, you, you know, there's ambiguity around yeah. it and then the budget changes. And the worst thing in the world is when there's dishonesty around that, you know, and, and you understand why there is. And the best thing in the world is when there's a shared agreement that there's going to be, a, a, you know, a reasonable amount and then the reasonable amount can grow based on the results of it, but everybody gets a chance to win. And even though that's so logical, it very, re you know, we pushed on that so hard. No, I know. And, we, and we bounced back to the, well, we did this last year yeah. or we got five million quid. We're going to do that again. Yeah. It's and the same. idea of, you know, values-based yeah. results was such an interesting idea that just didn't ever yeah, stick to around. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Value-based, you know, charging. I mean, agencies is so hard. You know, you give a, from where we, where we were and we've accepted we're a similar age, I still remember charging uh, a, a concept fee. You yes. know, that fucking, yeah. Dis yeah. I mean, yeah, God yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And so you give away the most valuable Con most valuable asset you have for free to then pay for, you know charge for your diminishing hours and be kicked around like an orange like it's not a good model but where where it becomes interesting is not necessarily the debate about money yeah. because if you're really saying imagine you don't have money imagine fear yeah. imagine late nights imagine yeah. being tired imagine being stressed imagine considering the vulnerability that you're in and the vulnerability that that puts the people that you love in yeah. now try and inhabit those emotions and now what are you willing to do and then you get to a place yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's why I think a useful question or that I outline in the book is what values do you hold so dearly that you'd be willing to fight for them? And, and, and don't, you know, don't listen to another word of this podcast until you can answer the question to yourself. What values do you honestly hold so dear that you'd be willing to fight for them? Most people, will, if of a certain age, will say their kids, someone they love. And, and then there can be a bit of a void. What is there?
But that's so important, though, because when you look back at your career, so many of your decisions probably are driven by that question, even whether you acknowledge it or not. It's, it's answering that that will dictate a lot of the decisions you make kind of career-wise as well, which I'd be quite surprised at because you sort of think, oh, I've got this great career plan. I'm going to do this job and that job. But I look back, it's probably that question that's driven most of my decisions when I really honestly answer it. Yeah, 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 completely. We're hard, we're hardwired as a, as a species for yeah. fear and to stay alive. Like, that's how we were made. We weren't designed for the level of uh, trauma and exposure and, and advertising messages and news headlines that we, we have now. So we're in this permanent state of arousal and overwhelm. It does not put you ever in your most creative state at all. Um, but, but by being, you can access that, but you've got to know where it is. Otherwise, your deepest fears are being triggered every, you know, with every, you know, just someone saying you're, I got an email yesterday uh, and it was just someone that used my first name, Trigger, <laughs> and then said, can you call me back, telephone, Trigger, uh, as ASAP, Trigger. <laughs> like, Shit, you know, I'm in so much trouble. And I called yeah. back, it's like, what's wrong? And they, they actually had a booking for me. But my assumptions, because of, you know, my, my inner fears are of you know, those kind of things. So, yeah, I think we spend a lot of You call it an unusual time at night, don't you? You yeah. just go, well, what's happened? You know? We assume the worst. Yeah. That, but that's why this work was really important. There's a lot of piracy which is around facing fears. There's this lovely borderline historical truth, right? There's um, uh, Under King James, there were 13 royal licensed cartographers. Uh, and that was because the world hadn't been fully discovered. And again, we're, we're setting out, we've got this idea of the, the, the empire building. We were a small nation empire at that stage, but we were going to take over the whole world and fucking murder, rape and pillage everyone in doing so. But because the whole world hadn't been mapped at this stage, we didn't want anyone going off the edges of the map because we knew that's where the booty was. So on the edges of these maps, they'd write here, there'd be dragons. Really? Yeah. Oh, right. So you would, it would stop any well, normal... stop state. people, like, yeah. expanding the map. Well, I've got to the Isle of Wight. I'm not going past here. <laughs> <laughs> there are dragons beyond that one. Exactly. But who would go to where the dragons were? Well, yeah. of course, the pirates would. Because firstly, the pirates yeah. knew how to navigate without maps. So the analogy is very clear. We're being told certain things. Do we believe in those things? Do we have an internal compass point with which we're willing to navigate beyond the rules of the world? Because the rules of the world are rarely fluid. And most of the rules, certainly in business and definitely in marketing, we're constantly needing to update. But that's pretty difficult because we like patterns that we feel familiar with. So knowing to go towards, to set your compass yeah. to where the dragons are and then to be able to navigate off the edge of the map is going to lead you to places of, of fortune, fame and adventure. And it's exciting as well. That's, uh, I think, do you find in the kind of work you do on, Pirate, on, on Be More Pirate, there are some people that gravitate to it and some people that gravitate away from it. Is there like a personality type that you're going to go, ah, yeah, they're definitely the pirate. You know, do you, do you notice that? In That's a good question. I, um, again, I was surprised with uh, the publishing industry, how books are written. You know, people go off and sit in a room on their own for a long time. And it's like the worst of entrepreneurship and business and marketing, actually. Uh, I will subjugate the world to my idea because I'm sure that I'm a genius. Uh, <laughs> research, what? Yeah. Co-creation, who? Um, and so I took my ideas right from that very first meeting where the, the boring book got shot to pieces. And so I did like sessions above pubs. I, any forum I could get a chance to go and read bits of the book and talk about it. And so I had a real sense and it became clear that I was writing the book both for myself and for the community that I roll with, you know, who are conflicted entrepreneur or extrovert entrepreneurs. And with who would all routinely put their hands up, say, yeah, I'm a pirate, I'm a pirate. Yeah. But what then became very interesting to me was all the people who work at the navy you know so when i've done work at you know who's the navy and that we're talking to everyone at wpp hello navy yeah. um and 
uh, and you know, huge Navy clients. But within that, there's a bunch of people who can. There and, are and, pirates inside. Yeah, exactly. And this yeah. was always the most interesting. Mm. Suddenly, it became the most interesting thing. It wasn't for me to write the book for all the existing pirates. Yeah, it was for everyone who's in the Navy or or feels like they're in the Navy but has an idea for change. And that's when the book and my writing and the whole purpose of it and the premise of it became successful. And and the reason it's been a success because. God knows how frustrating the bloody world is, but to also be in your role, to have a good idea, to sit and live near the problem, have a better idea for the problem, and to finally find a tool and mechanism that allows you to change it rather than be missold the, um, yeah. the you know the tropes of innovation, it was glorious, you know, and and uplifting, and that's the bit that that's fascinating. So not the obvious pirates, the less obvious pirates. Now going back to the branding a bit, one of the surprising things about pirates is you imagine they're like lawless, they're you know they're disruptive, they're uncontrolled. But actually, they operate by quite a strict code. If anything, it's as strict a code. And what's interesting in your book is how you look at the code from Henry Morgan to later, it gets more and more specific, uh, and it gets more defined as well, doesn't it? Um, talk to me about the what, what can we learn from the kind of pirate code? Because I suppose it's like brand guidelines a bit, isn't it? It's like that actually to be successful at the pirate, it doesn't mean kind of everything's up in the air. Actually, it means kind of codifying some of the behaviours that make you successful. Yes. So again, like I was so lucky. The book did write itself and I was so, I'll be forever grateful to Adam Morgan for not making the mistake that you can extend this metaphor over a whole book because as I discovered things like that, the code was all important. Mm. So the surprising truth of pirates in the history that I read and as I wrote it is the one word that defines them all is accountability. And that seems strange from the pirates that we know. Although it doesn't seem that strange because there is this kind of weird DNA thing. We've all, most of us grow up with this sentimentality towards pirates that doesn't make any sense like there aren't any other quasi socialist murderous rogues in history that you let your kids have your kids gone to a pirate party yeah, they have. yeah 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 have they ever been to a pablo escobar party uh, not that i know of yes that's a good point no i suggested <laughs> yeah yeah my yeah. ex-wife was great mexican. branding there right my ex-wife they, is mexican they, they, i suggested the kid's yeah. fifth birthday you know there you go there's an opportunity yeah yeah never been to a Che Guevara anyway so we know deep in our hearts right there is a sympathy yeah uh, and and I think it's because all of us I mean who listening hasn't wanted at some point to drive a cutlass through their boss or like or just through the fucking bullshit of the day or that brief or you know the nonsense that we're all going to subscribe to which is going to stop us doing the idea that we know is the good idea like that's the, what needs a pistol and so there's something in the spirit of rebellion here that we want and we can tell that there's something inherently good about them as well and and so this sense of accountability because once they'd determined the rules that they were going to break it stops being this chaotic act and that's why people are scared of rebellion and pirates and it becomes this creative act and so the code became this principle where they would say, right, our new way of doing things, we're going to make sure that everyone gets paid fairly and equally. And then you have to be accountable to that rule because you're not being handed that rule by your boss or by a client or by anyone else. That's our rule now. So we are really heavily invested in making it work. And it's how they managed to come to terms with these really big challenges. We were saying just before this, I think the real brief to the advertising industry at the moment is what is the role of advertising in a post-consumer society? You know, Earth Overshoot Day, mid-August, that's the world, the day the world runs out of its resources. Anybody selling some shit that we don't really need after that, you know, is part of the problem. And it's, you know, war crime territory in the way you're going to look back at it in five years. So what's the role of all the sophistication, strategy and effectiveness of advertising in a world where we don't need more stuff? In fact, where we need to move away from stuff. Um, and I think we're, there's a lot of brands and there's a lot of great agencies who are demonstrating what, or having the conversations about what that evolution can be because the power of advertising isn't going to diminish. But the the relationship with the levers that it pulls. And in piracy, we see this. We see fights for fairness that were punishable by death. You couldn't have a conversation about gay, black, 
people, women, whatever, having any particular yeah. position of equality. And then they created it. And all of a sudden there's a story. So they were accountable to those rules. So they had to create a set of rules. And there's obviously a, a paradox of pirates having rules because that doesn't make sense. And we're talking about rule breaking. So these codes, right, they're lovely. Allegedly, there's this kind of sense of theatre. So before a crew sets out, and so an agency or a brand can think about this, right? Because it's not, you know, a business plan is one of the best examples other than psychedelic drugs I can think of, of like people living in fantasy. Uh, we, you know, someone writes this thing in isolation, usually with a little bit of consultation, then it goes on a thing and we refer to it occasionally, like a spreadsheet, like any kind of budget, really. And then we believe it's true. There's something lovely about pirate codes because people live them. They, they exist for a mission. So we're a crew, we're going out on this mission. We don't know how long the mission's going to take, but until we come back, this is the code. They write down these values, and so it's values-based decision-making. And the values are, I'm willing to fight for this. If it's not something I'm going to fight for, then it's not on the list. So the consistent principles, there's only six codes that, 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 that survive through history because you'd be killed if you were caught with one of them on you. And there are these principles. Fair pay is always in there, really consistently. The democracy aspect is in there, really, really consistently. Uh, the insurance of injury is in there. So these are the things that fucking matter. They really this. matter. That's the point with them. It's like, that, that's life and death stuff, yeah. right? You yeah. Know, particularly when you're the vast minority, you know, tiny minority. Yeah. yeah. So the same to a team. What really, really matters to us, yeah. the quality of this work. Yeah. Our integrity as our team, standing yeah. up for what we believe in. Yeah. Great. Actually, most people would really fight for that. Yeah. Okay, so when push comes to shove and the budget's cut, or the creatives, oh, are we willing to fight for it? Okay, so how far does a fight go? Yeah. That's when it starts to get really interesting. And if you want to tap into what the power is that will give you the best work of your lives, it's in there yeah. and it's the fight and it's the bit that you'll always go, do you remember that? And that is the chance that we've got, right? No, and that's the spirit of this, this yeah. pirate adventure yeah. so that you can look back and know that you were doing the best work of your lives. And so these codes were things we'd live and die for. Mm. And then there's these lovely, charming nuances because then they'd update them. And those updates would be based on the lessons they learned last time. So in some of the latter codes, uh, there's one that seems really important where um, anyone found behaving inappropriately with a woman who's on board would be, you know, had their ears cut off and thrown overboard. So great, you know, clearly something bad happened. We'll address it. Um, there's another one about bands uh, and the band that's playing on board and the, 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 the working hours of the band. So they've clearly been overworked. Um, there's a great one. So you've got the, the important codes about pay and equality and then there's one about if anyone is caught getting drunk before the prisoners are tied up they'll be punished you're like <laughs> that's very specific right? clearly a lesson yeah. clearly yeah, a lesson yeah, yeah, was yeah, learned yeah. there they've obviously iterated it a few times and learned haven't they oh, fucking yeah. smashed that's our issue and the right? prisoners escaped <laughs> so there's this iterative notion yeah. to it and, and and there's something to be learned from that now because you're right there is a kinship with the idea of values in an organisation because the idea of values is something that's going to align us around it and I think values based decision making is was one of the important lessons I learned from the book if you've got a group of human beings and, and so these pirate codes, they had to be consigned to memory. So how many things can you remember that you're willing to fight for? I bet you it's five maximum. Yeah. And how many people work at an, a, a business where they have to write honesty on the walls in seven-foot letters? Don't trust anyone that writes honesty in seven-foot letters. And, and can never remember. Even the, you know, uh, how yeah, many CMOs yeah. have you know who don't know their own fucking... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's so trite often, uh, not always. And so this idea, right, what are we willing to fight for? Yeah. What are we going to, you know, comrades in arms fight for? And I can remember and I'll live by yeah. guaranteed better than thinking like an entrepreneur, you will then have a code that you and your comrades will live fight and do the best. And who, who, in your opinion, would be a great example of like a pirate today, a business that's acting like this today? Oh, I think there's loads. Um, uh, it feels very of now, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah. you know, it, 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 the circumstances in which the pirates arose, the conditions feel quite analogous, don't yeah. they, to where we are now and you know, whether it's Spotify and streaming downloads or whatever you know things like that there seems to be a lot of businesses emerging 
that are transforming how ownership is done, how, you know, how you publish and distribute stuff. I mean, even doing a podcast would probably be like the, the idea you could own your own media, you know, yourself and be a publisher. You know, 20 years ago, it was almost impossible. I mean, more than 20 years ago, but certainly within yours and my lifetimes, John, um, you had the pirate radio movement. Of course, yeah. So in terms of uh, owned, owned media, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a good example. So everything that we just said about why the Pirates came up with a set of rules was to challenge the unfairness they'd seen before and you had a willingness to fight for it. So you had, in this country, three channels governed by the BBC. You didn't have commercial radio, and that was largely the same in many other places and very much the home... Unless you had something souped up, you couldn't plug into international uh, frequencies. And so a ship two miles off the coast, so just outside of uh, the jurisdiction, um, got a couple of DJs and started playing cool credible normal music it's the fucking 60s man i mean there's no shortage of good music i remember this i remember being like young teenager i think it was radio caroline radio luxembourg all the all they were the super cool stations weren't yeah. they but then so then let's let's continue the analogy all of a sudden uh, i think the first recorded spend was something like 60 million all of a sudden yeah. there's a business so it wasn't done to create an industry and that's the thing. Being a pirate is not a permanent state. And we'll come back to the question yeah. about what business is being. There is no business that continues to be a pirate. Apple, you know, Steve Jobs famously puts the flag up, asks the question, better to be a pirate than join the Navy. That led to the creation of the Mac Classic and their fight against IBM. And that's why they flew a pirate flag above Apple the day Jobs died. But at that point, they're definitely not and do not continue to be a pirate organization. They are 100% the Navy. And I, yeah. I can't imagine anyone there would deny that either. Um, and that was the true of the pirates. You would yeah. be a pirate for a while. You would go what's called on the account. And, and to this day, being a pirate is useful. I, I, I do workshops for being a pirate a lot. I didn't, didn't think of this. I got called in to do one when the book had come out. And I was like, fuck me. The last thing I want to do is go and join exactly the kind of bullshit that I was rebelling against. You know, uh, uh, you know and, and this isn't to generalize, but we've all been to innovation workshops where you write a bunch of shit on post-it notes that is then forgotten. And you rebrand the thing that you've already got, call it something else. And then that one genuine idea gets put in some slides and strangled in an email thread where all good ideas are sent to die. And so we came up with an idea for creating an actual mutiny in a session that, that then led to doing things differently. And it was really effective and still continues to be effective for a while. And that's the thing. Change is a, is a, is a constant. So then Radio Caroline and the other pirate radios then take off around the world. And all of a sudden you've got commercial radio and the, then the BBC has to change the laws and then allows commercial. So, and that's it. Innovation takes place. Pirates happen on the edges and the fringes of the society. They create huge waves. By the time those waves hit the middle of society, they've quelled and calmed. And entire businesses are built on the back of it. So to your earlier point, pirates weren't necessarily being forward thinking about workers' rights, although workers' rights followed in the footsteps of the innovation that they paved the way for by demonstrating that there was higher levels of engagement and efficacy of their teams. And pirate radio didn't go, oh, let's invent fucking global radio. But they said, this is terrible and we need a better solution. But they, again, paved the foundations. And so the same applies to anyone listening. If you are stagnating, if you need to find a new market, if you need to find new audiences or break a bottleneck, that is when it's time to be more pirate. Not a permanent state. If you carry on being a pirate for a year or two, it's exhausting. But you create a code and for a while you go on that mission and, and you go off the edge of the map to where the dragons are. And in all those instances, that's, that's what happens. And that was mainly me covering for time so I could answer the question. We were talking about wallets earlier on um, because this lovely gentleman has a wallet making business. And there is a great company called Elvis and Cressy who make wallets and belts. And this is getting weird, but I'm taking my belt off. Uh, so if anyone listening that's not watching me yet, not on YouTube, Sam Sam's not just taking his belt tattoo, off. But yeah. my belt's come off. He's a leather expert. What's that? 
Producer James is definitely the expert of leather making. Producer James makes beautiful leather. Yes. Uh, so what, is, what would you say that was? Uh, it's Firehose. It's made by an, what I would definitely call a pirate company. She makes luxury fashion items. You can buy them. Her handbags are off the chart. The belt that I'm wearing was previously modelled by Cameron Diaz. You can take your pick, me or Cameron Diaz. The wallet I've got is absolutely awesome. It's stab-proof material, so the bags have a double purpose. It's made from fire hose, and because fire hose, because of its necessary safety features, is non-biodegradable. It's one of the least biodegradable substances on earth. lasts for longer than a fucking cockroach. Um, so it's a terrible landfill thing, but also because it's a fire hose, you have to upgrade it every two years. So she works with firefighters charities, uh, she started about 10 years ago. She makes these beautiful luxury items from this very interesting material that's filled with all these kind of idiosyncrasies that makes every single piece unique. And as of last year, yeah. there is no fire hose in the UK whatsoever going to landfill anymore. She really? takes all what, the taking waste, all the entire takes, fire hose out of the system. And she's wow. now working with firefighters and, uh, around the world. She's stocked in the highest and coolest boutiques in the world. Uh, 50% of the profits go to firefighter charities motherfucker right like that is exactly how you do it and now Cressy because um, the business yeah. is called Elvis and Cressy we should shout them out um, is working with Burberry and numerous others on similar kind of patterns so she that period of being a pirate yeah. she went completely against all of the trends yeah. she upended aspects of fashion she pushed into the world of social enterprise you know the, everything's there she rebelled she wrote a new rule for how to do things and she told a fucking good story that others followed and now she's in the navy Working with yeah. Navy yeah, types. Yeah, changing the Navy. Well, that's what happens, isn't it's, it? You, it's, yeah. a Navy. It's, a t- it's a tool and a technique. You yeah. don your pirate hat, put your patch on, you fuck yeah. some shit up, yeah. and then you watch and then the you ripples the take yeah. effect. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Obviously, the pirates were operating in a time of change. They were creating the change as well as being in a change. There's a hell of a lot changing in our world right now, isn't there? And it feels like, you know, we've got pandemic, we've got global uncertainty, we've got wars, we've got technology disrupting what we're doing. And you've been looking at the role of uncertainty and how we respond to uncertainty. And that feels like quite a rich thing. Talk to me a bit about that. Uh, yes, we are in this state of crisis or a crisis in a crisis in a crisis in a crisis, I think. Um, what's your favourite crisis? Uh, well, choose from the list. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to play Top Trump's crisis. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, you'd well, be like, you'd have the card. You'd probably, probably go environment first, wouldn't you? You'd have to, wouldn't you? Well, well, it depends on the time frame. Right? Depends what's on your top Trump list. You know, you'd, yeah. have to have, you'd have to have deaths on there, not to get too dark about it. Yeah, okay. Uh, pandemic, seven million global deaths. Yeah. Globe climate crisis, five million a year. So that would that would top your top Trump. You. Mm-hmm. Now I'm assuming I've got climate crisis and you've got pandemic in our top Trump's game. This is terrible. But yeah, I mean, you, war, war in Ukraine. Uh, we'll give James war well, in Ukraine. War in Ukraine only at three. That's, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's like, yeah, I mean that's. I know we're in the hundreds. It of just yeah. anyway. So yes, there's far yeah. too many and the. Firstly, the honest, the spirit of this being uncensored. So the world changed demonstrably and I have spent my entire career calling for change and I didn't know what to do. And worse than that, actually, I fucking panicked and I felt like a hypocrite and my my life had changed demonstrably. I'd got divorced around the same time the book came out. I'd left Liberty and I'm really honest, a lot of my ego and identity was wrapped up in Liberty. We'd won all these awards I was very much a kind of social entrepreneur that was working out what my issues and identity was. And, and by trying to save the world, I was really trying to avoid some of my own problems or, or work on my own inner challenges and divorce with two small kids. It was, it was a time that I felt a lot of guilt and shame, but the book had come out and done really well. And so I was doing an awful lot of travel, which suited my flexibility because I was a single dad now half the week. And then it all just disappeared because I was reliant on travel and, and I was, my business model was breathing on people, right? It was not a good business model for a pandemic. And so I was applying for insolvency and for jobs six months into that 
and I've never been a solvent, never had a job. And it was terrifying. And not just the other, back to that thing, like you haven't got any money. Thing. I, the shame and the guilt and the, and it was just so at odds with like this life that I'd had and, you know, the people coming to me going, oh yeah, this is Be More Pirates time. You know, with the world's now changing, what are we going to do? And I just was scared. And I, you know, like lots of people kind of drank my way through the first half of lockdown and, and, and I felt like a hypocrite and I felt like I didn't know what to do because change had come calling and I was having a meltdown. And as I began to like write myself, the thing that I did that gave me strength was I started men volunteering, mentoring. It's always been a huge part of my life. It was a huge part of the, the success and the model of Liberty was based on its relationship with young, bright talent. And as I started to mentor these incredible smart young people, um, I got a lot of strength and, and inspiration from it, obviously, because I tried to help all I could. But I, and actually what became really clear very quickly was the kids and lots of Liberty's work was in the realms at the edges of society. So the kids who had a background where they were refugees or they'd been in the justice system, single parents, homelessness, gangs, the businesses that I'd helped them set up, and I've done lots of work in entrepreneurship and in prisons, their attitude was amazing. Their, their responsiveness was, was completely different. Uh, their sense of humor. Um, all of the things that feed resilience were, were remarkable and different. And I started, so I interviewed some of the lads, particularly the ones that I'd worked with in prison about their responses. And I wrote up the piece and it was like lessons for lockdown based on you know, really amazing young entrepreneurs I know who just happened to have had some experience in prison. And I called them, I used the term uncertainty experts. And the piece went viral, certainly viral for my kind of, level of writing and I just got hooked on this idea and I started looking for people who I would term as uncertainty experts I like the juxtaposition I like you know I think that the world is yeah. the more we can handle unreconciled paradoxes the more we see the world for what it really is and the more we force ourselves to find patterns the less we see the world for it is do you know that rats are better at making predictions than human beings because of their ability not to fall into pattern behavior rats and humans were asked to uh, predicts patterns based on random traffic lights and because humans are so wedded to thinking that they're smart and that there are patterns we constantly oh right it's green 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 red whereas rats are like fuck it there's no pattern yeah. so we're not very good at that and, and this is what I could see all day the fucking bullshit and this is before we knew the level of lies and inadequacy that was going on uh, we were just being we were being sold new normal yeah. which was a, a, a horrible notion that you know normal is the thing that got us into trouble in the first place normal was an acceptable level of unpreparedness there was no way a, a, a pandemic was predicted we, there was a pandemic preparation strategy yeah. it was in the un's top three risks for the world you know the the previous administration in the uk the previous administration in the us had it was all funded and planned and then that funding had been so it wasn't unprecedented it was totally predicted and, and we got resold that as a new normal. Much like we're being sold a cost of living crisis. Yeah. Like it's not a fucking cost of living crisis because that makes it sound equal. It's just an amazing piece of framing. So new normal, I mean, no one wants that because that's what got us into trouble in the first place. And this inadequacy of leadership and an inability, and this is an interesting one for leaders in marketing, I think, an inability to tell the truth. And the truth of the moment is very often, I don't know. But how does a CMO or any other leader say, I don't know in a way that's convincing or in a way that's compelling? How the hell do you say, I don't know in a way that's reassuring? But I damn well know that I don't know is very often the truth. And I don't know, you know, there's a lot of talk of problem definition, I think, at the moment in marketing and strategy, and rightly so, because we default to solutions too quickly. The longer you can spend with a problem, the more likely you are to get to it. It's the old quote, isn't there? Yeah, if yeah, I had yeah. an hour to chop down a tree, I'd spend... 55% on the question, yeah. Exactly. Sounds smart, great, but I'm not yeah, doing yeah. that. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that, that line that we've heard so many times, sorry, not to get too tactical too quickly, but how about if we put a... Yeah, yeah. And so this fascinated me, and I began to juxtapose the interviews that I was having, and I, then I found... 
and my model was to look for people where there's the full moral kind of journey. So I wanted dual success. So I found gang leaders who'd then become successful business leaders. So you have to be pretty tenacious and strategic uh, and strong-willed to run a gang successfully, right? And it's a very sophisticated, uh, you know, there's tough financial controls, very clear marketing, you know, amazing uh, staff retention policies. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not even not even joking. I used to I run an exercise with young people to write CVs uh, creating morally ambiguous terminology for yeah. the product they were using. And they're very impressive. I mean, you wouldn't, you would yeah. recruit these guys. Yeah. And then they've, they've turned things around and they've become business leaders. So there's a duality to their success. And, and at the time, as the, the lockdown broke, the entire of the UK cabinet office was comprised three career paths, finance, law, and I think management consultants. I mean, and who in the world thinks that we should be run by, by that yeah. category alone? Not that there's not brilliant lawyers, finance yeah, yeah. people and, and management consultants, maybe less management consultants, but nonetheless. And so... I started to find this really remarkable inspiration. So I found a prisoner of war who'd gone through that really grueling experience, but it wasn't just survivor bias because remarkable people will get through remarkable situations. And he'd gone on to become a politician, people who'd gone through addiction, mental health, who'd yeah. gone on to become healers, activists. And it was that duality and it really began to fascinate me. And, and I found this set of stories. And because I needed something to do, I started telling those stories and I started running this workshop and I was calling uncertainty experts. And it just hit a nerve, man, because, you know, we already know what it was like. The last thing we needed was another Zoom call. The last thing we needed was another resilience workshop. And here was something, again, you know, just like Liberty, just like Being a Pirate, that drew inspiration from the outer lying edges, gave us something relatable, gave us something honest, and spoke to the truth of the matter that we don't know what the answer is. But if you can handle staying with the problem, there is discovery in doubt. And that's not what we're told, but it's the truth. And it's the same as here, there be dragons, right? Yeah. If you can handle yeah. staying in a place of uncertainty, although we're primed against it, yeah. There is possibility in a way that there isn't in a brainstorm, you know, yes. under a spotlight. Yeah. Like, let's get a genuinely new idea. Well, let's get to the right, right to the edges where the, the only currency that we need to survive is genuinely new ideas. And what, what's the greatest learning you've taken out of that experience? I mean, that's pretty profound, right? To face into uncertainty, talk to people on the extremes that have transformed themselves, whether, you know, from gangs to, you know. But, but what would you at this point say the greatest ap application of that insight is well the surprise to it is there's a level of robust science behind it which i as a marketeer oh. have never had uh <laughs> in on the whole yes marketeers yeah, yeah. talking about science we talk about the science and what happened was i was asking people to give me a scale of how they felt about their ability to turn uncertainty into opportunity i turned it into this workshop that mirrored the workshops that i'd run for being a pirate at the beginning at the end of the thing just to kind of get a sense of whether it was working i was just goddamned I found myself being introduced on stages and things as an inspirational speaker, and it just really makes me laugh. But like, A, it's the last thing I think I want to be. And B, I think we're in a time where inspiration alone, and, and again, this is a word of warning to us as we think about brands and campaigns to inspire. We're not in a time where inspiration is what's needed. I think inspiration alone is just going to cause more frustration. We're in a time where words minus action is going to equal shit, and it is a time to act. And inaction is a choice and one that will be judged. So... Oh, that sounded ominous. Not by me, <laughs> by your future and your kids. Uh, so I was looking for a scientist to try and help me understand the psychological impact of what was going on, right? There was a clear pathway that these individuals had re rewired themselves. And I just, what I didn't want to do was inspirational stories where actually it was just survivor bias. They would have been remarkable whatever happened. Yeah, yeah. So what I'd reframe them. I met this incredible scientist called Catherine Tempo Lewis, cognitive scientist, behavioral psychologist. She's got more degrees and masters than anyone I've ever met. First in Oxford, one of those super brains. 
also a weird career in ho- uh, horror movies uh, for a little bit and just devastatingly amazing woman. And she gave me an understanding of what was going on neurologically and psychologically. And she introduced me to the decision making and uncertainty laboratory at UCL. Wow. Talk about niches. Never knew there was such a thing as that. It's niche as fuck. And scientists aren't very good at communication. So there's, there's, there, there, I'm, I'm become a big believer in the interdisciplinary approaches, certainly marketing and science and exploration and research. They'd been brought into existence in 2009 after the financial collapse to try and work out why an industry that should be good at predicting was so terrible at predicting and how organizations could get better at making predictions. And they'd uh, analyzed most decision-making frameworks and found that most decision-making frameworks were invented by white men in labs. So, you know, Daniel Kahneman, the great work that we think we understand, the kind of stuff that we put in decks all the time, you know, isn't based on the reality. So we have numerous frameworks for uncertainty, but very few practical uh, applications for it. And they'd come up with a practical framework they wanted to take to the world, and they were looking for a live project. So I was like, wow, I've got a live project, and I'm looking for a robust backbone to it. So we partnered up, um, and there is a... a, sorry, So the most profound lesson I have is that we all have a trait called uncertainty tolerance. And it sits in our subconscious. And where that is, we can we can give a, a demonstration. Would you, John, take your pointy finger? Yeah. Everybody listening. Yes. Would you please take your pointy <laughs> take finger? Take your pointy finger. On whichever hand that you use, right hand, left hand, hold your pointy finger up. And now, please draw a capital letter Q on your forehead. A capital letter Ooh, Q. Q on my forehead. Draw a capital letter so Q on your forehead. A big like circle that. with a tail. Yes. Excellent. Uh, right. John... And as you might be able to see if you're watching yeah. the camera, you drew, which eye did you draw your tail towards? Uh, right eye. Mm, excellent. So, John, uh, if you drew your cue to the left, which is slightly the norm, uh, you drew your cue for me. You drew your cue as the world sees you. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, I did. Yeah. People in marketing have a higher tendency to draw their cue to the left because they're seeing themselves as the world sees them. It's, uh. it's a trait that means you're technically a better liar. Oh, really? <laughs> there you go, breaking news, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there we go. Uh, <laughs> but also, word, h- I say. higher levels of empathy. Uh, you drew the cue to the right. Yeah. So you, have a, yeah. you are seen in psychological yeah. studies that have looked at this. Yeah. Uh, you have a clear view of who you are in yeah. the world. Yeah. You're not writing your cue for me. Yeah. Fuck me. You know, you're <laughs> writing it for you. Yeah. And so it's even that's in the same place that our biases sit, all of our different cognitive yeah. biases, yeah. and it's where uncertainty tolerance sits. And it determines yeah. how well an uncertainty tolerance, the... And so uncertainty tolerance is a psychological trait discovered in the 1990s um, in research into anxiety reduction. And it relates to decision-making, open-mindedness, comfort with ambiguity, uh, tolerance for the unknown, Hmm. um, problem-solving, creativity, collaboration, because you're more able to sit with people that you might disagree with. It's like a marketeer's, like it's like a book that we've been looking for. And if you can increase your uncertainty tolerance, uh, like a a society that has higher uncertainty tolerance is less able to be pulled into community conflict and division. Um, Political campaigns have been studied over the last 10 years. Political audiences with low uncertainty tolerance are more likely, consistently, to fall for conspiracy theories and polarised. So it has profound profound impact. So if you can increase someone's uncertainty tolerance... And that was what the study found. The characters that we were talking about had high levels of uncertainty tolerance. So it didn't matter whether they were in gangs or whether they were running a boardroom because they'd rewired themselves, mm. they'd increase this psychological trait that we all had. Because now you know this one about the queue. You mm. can always now have a tendency. Right, I know that I tend to see myself as the world sees me. That's interesting. Next time I'm on stage or doing whatever, I understand a little bit more about myself. Yep. Like if you discover you have a bias in one direction or another, you can then course yeah. correct. If you now know that you have a low uncertainty tolerance, right, okay, so I need yeah. to do the things that will drive my uncertain tolerance up or my team are not very good at creative ideas when they're all working remotely or 
you know, my team all look the same mm. and we're not able to really get to grips with the audience who look very different from my mm. team. We need to have some, you know, uh, experiences with people that we might not be familiar with. And that yeah. might be uncomfortable to yeah. us because of the way that we've lived our lives. Right. And that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing, but what you can do with that becomes really profound and interesting. Mm. So yeah, I discovered this recent discovery of uncertainty tolerance, but then the, the, the breakout thing, we then told this set of stories. I did a, a lockdown. I was one of the people that did lots of courses in lockdown to stop me drinking. First, first lockdown was drinking. Second lockdown was courses. <laughs> uh, so I did an online course about online courses. I did an online course about documentary making. And then I made a documentary. So I interviewed all these remarkable characters. I interviewed the scientists. Uh, and I put it together in a way that then asks the audience a series of questions. And you have to reflect on those questions. So I interview these guys, run a gang. We then find out his lessons for it. I then interview a psychologist who explains that he's demonstrating a great yeah. example of neuroplasticity. Yeah. And then I ask you to reflect on your recent crash, for example. Yeah. And yeah. the impact that's had on you neurologically. Yeah. And you yeah. tell me about the hearing. Yeah, yeah. And you then reflect on that. And over a series of these three episodes, so it's like going to three CBT um, yeah. therapy sessions, but with this remarkable fucking characters of unusual <laughs> suspects and these brilliant um, scientists who explain. And at the end of it, we get people to take a robust scientific assessment of their uncertain tolerance. It takes about 12 minutes to do. And at the end, and we then, because the, the, we now had access to this lab at UCL, they ran it against uh, two separate control groups. Mm -hmm. And in every single instance, we saw a statistically significant increase in uncertainty tolerance of 95% of the people really? who just wow. sat and watched the documentary really? and interacted with it. Oh, the, well, the documentary itself changed yeah. their uncertainty tolerance. Three just hours. The, the virtue watch. of watching it. Mm -hmm. that's, interesting. that's quite a fast, that's quite a quick turnaround, isn't it? To it's a groundbreaking psychological well, intervention that upends. Uh, Have you trademarked this as well? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Everyone watch my documentary and the world's <laughs> problems will be solved. Uh, there is a study out last year of 100 different economies and it directly shows the correlation between tolerance to uncertainty and innovation. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Um, businesses are more fragile. If you're, thinking, if you're worried about burnout, if you're worried about low engagement of your teams, if you're worried about courage, confidence, creativity of your ideas, if you're worried about conflict conversations, if you're worried about standing up to client, any of those things, they're all 100% affected by uncertainty tolerance. We are better able at all of this work we want to do and to be bold enough to be equal to the kind of challenges we face with solutions that will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Uncertainty tolerance is a key component to that. And fundamentally, it increases your ability to stay near the problems without that <gasps> tendency, right, we need to get to an answer before, by the end of this meeting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and all the things that are driving that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do. I really believe that we're onto something. So we've, we've incorporated as a company, but true to all my businesses, there's a social enterprise element. We've done some, um, we're looking for the most beneficial audiences we can run it with. So we've done some with teachers. Yeah. Teachers have got the highest rate of burnout in the UK, lowest levels of innovation, 50% are considering leaving. I mean, where the fuck are we going to go after that? And we run some free cohorts for teachers and we saw a statistically significant increase in their onset tolerance. Yeah. We, go, we look for any frontline workers, unemployed students, whatever, can come and you know, get the course for whatever they want to pay. There is a trend, isn't there, in society that large complex issues that are filled with nuance are dealt with in a very binary fashion, like leave, remain, you know, in, out, like Tories, Labour, right? We are... Viewing a nuanced and complex world with 21st century binary thinking. And the same is true in, in, in marketing very often. And, 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 and the reductive approach that we've got to everything. Our audience needed something in a 15 second clip. Like, yeah, sure, that is a trend. But the complexity of the challenges that we face will only be uncovered by getting into the nuance of them. Let's end here, right? Because you have also started some other enterprise as well, haven't you? Uh, to add to your vast portfolio of, of, of enterprises that you've got now and and in a way you're embracing a level of uncertainty with this as well aren't you in a different sense yes but tell, tell me tell tell everyone what uh, you've taken up recently 
stand-up comedy? Uh, it's brilliant. Mm. <laughs> that 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 I'm a fairly confident person, right? And I, I'm very happy being on stage and I'll chat. That is something that scares me. I, I don't know what it is. It, well, I'm not. I don't know what it is. I mean, it's like being in front of people, judging you, having to make them laugh. That just even for me, I'm like, that's bold. How how does how does that feel? In uncertainty, I suppose we ended up interviewing this Buddhist monk. He's the highest rated Dharma light carrier in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh in the world. Um, and and he was abandoned as a baby and raised in a foster home. So he was the only black child, not only in his foster home, but in his entire town. So he experienced extreme. So he's a, he qualified as an uncertainty expert. But what was very interesting is that he, the Buddhist wisdom that he had correlates exactly with cutting edge neuroscience. So things that have only been discovered in the last 10 years about our brain sit entirely with a 200, two and a half thousand year old philosophy. One of these is beginner's mindset. If you can tolerate, and this is, you know, for you, yeah. ex-CMO, for me, the CEO, entrepreneur, for everyone listening, everything tries to pull us towards uh, expertise, towards knowing what we're talking about, towards having an answer. And so we lose the benefit of naivety, and naivety drives neuroplasticity, our yeah. ability to learn. Yeah. It was once thought that diminished after our 20s. That's absolutely not true. There are two states that drive neuroplasticity. One is psychedelics, uh, and the other is uncertainty. So being at the back of the class and not knowing is incredibly, incredibly good for us. But it goes against everything that is about the tropes of leadership and knowing what you're doing. And so for the last three years, I've done something new every year. The first year was fighting and I did Krav Maga for a year. The second year was singing and this year has been comedy. So that's the reason so, for doing it. with that in mind, and on the basis of always ending on a high, <laughs> what joke have you told that has, gone to, has created the biggest laugh in the audience? The first time I did stand-up was an event about failure. And... I have always had a pretty emotional and deep sense of failure. I know lots of people say we celebrate it, but I've always fucking hated it. Mm. And I remember very early on, about 13 years old, I was going to have my first kiss, my, my then girlfriend, Miranda Mitchell. And I've been planning it and panicking about it. And I was so, so worried about it going wrong that when the moment came, I found myself bouncing from, from you know, side to side, like I was, like I was boxing, <laughs> which is a terrible way by the way, to approach your first kiss. It's just I was really, really scared of getting off on the wrong foot. Did um very good. But then it carried on throughout my life. My first long term relationship was um also a disaster. She was absolutely beautiful, but but this fairly bonkers communist. I met her in the in the Croydon Young Communist Club. Um which, you know, means to be honest, I should have seen the red flags. <laughs> but talking of, um, to, to, I was going to say, talking I, of red flags, my current girlfriend, who I love, love dearly, she says that when she met me, there were so many red flags, uh, she mistook it for bunting. <laughs> and so I asked her to, for some guidance on this set, and I asked her what my biggest failure was, and she said it's not that big at all. I love it. <laughs> I, I think is there a stage for James? Dad? James is enjoying. Oh, this. he's impressed. Yeah, is there a stage for dad jokes? Because like. I, I was laughing on the train this morning. It was like, um, uh, yeah, my, girl, my girlfriend doesn't like my car jokes. Quite frankly, she's exhausted. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I don't know. It, it's, I, people pretty, dad jokes are funny. Anyway, there you go. What I it really, must be me. I, what I enjoyed be was the, the, the kind of structure and, and, and the learning of it. And, well, uh, there is quite, there is a, because I've heard that you can go on comedy classes and actually mm. you can de deconstruct how jokes are derived and what makes them funny and not funny. There's, there's quite a lot of I science. saw a lot of overlap in what yeah. I learned about uncertainty because the brain, the brain loves a certain degree of novelty. It's, you know, why, are, why are some surprises make you really happy 
and some surprises make you very anxious. Yeah. The brain lights up in an fMRI scan exactly the same way in fear and excitement, exactly the same way. Blood goes mm. to the same, same regions of the brain. So it's, that's why it's so trainable and our responses to it. Um, and what I've learned in, in the kind of art of some of the comedy writing, like that's a terrible joke, right? But I was leading you in one direction and you were waiting for the payoff. Yeah, and yeah. then you go in slightly yes. the unexpected. And that's it. It's all a set. It's a series of one, two, threes. Yeah. You get someone to expect something and then you, and the brain goes, ah, oh, lovely. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, the brain is just a prediction machine. And when it's delighted by the, or it kind of predicts it's coming, or you think you're in on the joke, or you've worked out, there's this lovely little, you know, chemical release. And well, I was listening to some comedians. They were, they were saying that, that actually even familiarity with the same joke gets funnier over time. That Even like, you know, you sort of think, well, I've heard that before, so it can't be as funny. But actually almost playing to a familiar joke can be, you know, in itself be good, which is a bit weird when you think about it, you know, that actually the certainty of knowing the punchline or actually you don't have to fill the joke in because people know the punchline sort of thing as well can be a good technique. Yeah, well, the thing that we hate and why we hate uncertainty is, is dissonance. So when something doesn't add up in the way that we think, yeah. and that's why we'll... There's this great study that kind of brings this all together because it's a funny study of uncertainty. Um, it was at UCL, I think it's about 700 participants, so decent size with power to the control group. And uh, everyone played a game with involved in electric shock if you couldn't find the, the snake under a rock or something. And with unerring consistency, human beings will take pain over the possibility of pain. We wow. hate uncertainty so much, we'd prefer an electric nice. shock over it. And so... If you're watching something and then, you know, a really good film or a lovely bit of light, you know, suddenly pulls you in the wrong direction, mm. you can have an out-of-body experience. The dissonance is horrible. This yep. feels uncomfortable. Yep. I don't like this. But when you hear something familiar and you get to the end or there's a suspended seventh note and you're like, yes, yes and then that's what drops, I was wanting. Like, that's, that's what, what I came wanting. for. Yeah. And that's, and that's because the brain says, I predicted <laughs> this correctly. Yeah. Here is a little burst of dopamine. Yeah. And that's because... 300,000 years ago, when you were first on the savannah, uh, you had to train yourself as to what was likely to lead yeah. to a threat and what was likely to Makes keep you alive. Sense. Brilliant. There you go, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Well, I bought some books as prizes. Yep. So anyone watching, this is a book. You can't miss it, in fact. Uh, as I say, Pink doesn't have an author, doesn't have a title or an author on the front, so you know it's Sam's. And then everyone listening, yeah, it's pink, bright pink. So what's the, what's the question for someone to win a book? What do you want to do? Oh, question to win a book. There's a, there's a few books to give away. So who can guess to the nearest number how many books you've sold? Right on. Okay. There yep. you go. Now, the, is the snigger a clue or is the snigger a... <laughs> no, no, no. I, 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 yeah, no, it's fine. I'm happy What's to... the nearest hundred or thousand? Or I'm you? happy to share that information. Go. Yeah, I'll go and get an update from Penguin. Right. Great. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, so that was it. That was my interview with Sam Connor. Hope you enjoyed that. I found it really fascinating. Lovely to hear from Sam and just some of the interesting things that he's doing in his career and how we can be more pirates because I think that's something that definitely uh, we all can be sometimes. So um, if you like this and you want to listen to more Uncensored CMO, please do subscribe. You can go and do that wherever you get your podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube as well, please do subscribe and never miss an episode again. If you'd like to follow me, you can do john at uncensoredcmo.com or find me on Twitter at uncensoredcmo um, or on LinkedIn at John Evans. It's great to have you with us and uh, I hope you join me next time. Thanks for watching. <laughs>